Good morning, everybody. And uh, we are celebrating what's sometimes called Low Sunday, but no Sunday's ever low in this world. Uh, and so the story goes this way, that uh, on Maundy Thursday, the following article uh, occurred in the Salisbury Journal. It said that uh, the archaeology group Friends Observing Outstanding and Lovely Stones had decided the iconic monolith of Stonehenge needed to be returned to its Welsh homeland. And one reader complained that it would cause chaos if it went by road, and others commented how much lighter the traffic would be around the Henge without tourists. The chairman of the Welsh campaign group, Return the Rocks, said, It's something we have wanted for a long time. I can't believe it's finally happening. Anyhow, uh, the date, of course, of last Monday, Thursday, was the 1st of April, and I think there's a little clue there that it was a very good April full. Uh, but, of course, sadly, we in Amesbury have uh, more than one experience of what people today would call false news. There's quite a lot of it going about. And um, we know from our experience of uh, the Novichok incident, sadly, that uh, serious national authorities can do all sorts of things to twist the truth, to try and keep their version of events the way they would like it to be and not fit the facts. And it comes as no surprise that the reading that we have just heard from is uh, an instance of that false news coming out that the Jewish leaders couldn't cope with the uncomfortable truth that Jesus might have risen from the dead. Uh, in fact, the passage uh, that we have heard uh, tells us that uh, the Jewish leaders came to Pilate and they said, we remember that while he was still alive, so the Jews accepted that Jesus had died at least, uh, that that deceiver said, after three days I will rise again. How interesting that the Jewish leaders were quoting the words of Jesus to Pontius Pilate, but he gave in to the request. They asked for a tomb to be made secure so that um, the disciples may avoid coming to steal the body and tell the people he'd been raised from the dead. False news. What are the facts? Well, a great uh, teacher um, uh, who went around universities, who worked for Campus Crusade for Christ, was of the name of Josh McDowell. And he used to say these words when he started off on a talk called Resurrection, Hoax, or History. He said that after 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundations, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, uh, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men. Or it is the most fantastic fact of history. Uh, so what I'd like to do is just review the scene and the events around the uh, burial uh, and the Easter Sunday and just stand back a week away from it to have a look again at what happened and what the various false news theories might be and see how we can account for them against the evidence, the facts, let them speak for themselves. So uh, we're bringing up the text here in Matthew chapter 27 of the um, end of Good Friday, and the Jews um, had approached Pilate, and uh, Pilate's response to them, verses 65 and 66, were, 
take a guard, and he was going to supply it. Pilate said, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. Why did they go to Pilate? Because they wanted a Roman guard, not their own temple uh, police plod. Uh, they, they wanted someone who was trained in combat to defend, if necessary, should there be any interference with the tomb. And what he was supplying them with was what's called a custodia, uh, a group from which we get the English word custodi uh, custodians, who would guard with their lives that uh, place that they were placed in charge of. They were trained and armed for combat to defend a patch of ground. Four, maybe eight of the uh, guard would be set. And if they failed in their duty, uh, Roman historians tell us that they would suffer the death penalty if they were unable to complete their task, though quite serious it was. And let's just take a look at some of the features of it. The first one is a stone was placed over, this, over the tomb. It, it was a, this this uh, tomb would have been cut into the rock. Only wealthy people could afford that, which we know Joseph of Arimathea was. And it says that the stone was a large stone. The word in Greek is a mega stone. It would have weighed, oh, I don't know, half a ton or more. And it was cut into a channel so that it would roll down the hill and seal the entrance. Uh, Pilate said to make it secure. The Greek word for that is asphalizo, from which we get asphalt. The asphalt, as we know, is the layer that secures the road as its final covering. And he also then instructed that they were to seal the tomb with a Roman seal. The authority of Rome was on it, that if anyone dared touch that, they would incur the wrath of Rome itself. So this was quite a challenge. But the next day, or rather Easter day, we understand that uh, the angel rolled the stone away. We can read this in Matthew 28, and the, the words are coming up. A violent earthquake. The angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. Sometimes the stones of these were actually more like a plug which they, which they inserted into the entrance of a cave or tomb. But in this case, we think that it was probably more likely the rolled salt. But either way, the angel was sitting on top of it he had pushed the stone flat, and he was seated on it. And um, so it describes his appearance, white like lightning, white as snow. And the guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. These were trained combat soldiers, at least four, maybe eight of them. One man in white scared them so silly that they were like dead. They couldn't react at all. Now, what caused that? It could only be something of great power. And the angel waited politely until the women turned up. And he then explained to them that they should go and tell the disciples and then meet with Jesus up in Galilee. Well, what did the guards do in response to this? As soon as the women left, they scarpered. They left their post. Well, why? Because actually, accidentally... They were the first Gentile witnesses to the empty tomb. 
and they didn't go to their commanding officer. Well, they didn't dare because they knew the penalty. And what story are you telling me? How could it be empty? You must have fallen asleep, right? You're for the executioner next morning. But they ran instead to, as our picture shows here, to the Jewish priests. And that's when the false news plot was hatched. Let's tell them the story. The disciples stole it while we were asleep. That doesn't figure very easily because that's a death penalty offense. However, don't worry, we'll sort it. And money seemed to smooth the way. But it does raise some questions. I've got a few here. Number one, could the disciples possibly have stolen the body? What? Risk the guard, the sentries, break the Roman seal, and then after you've done it, what are you going to do? What are you going to do with the body? Hide it. Uh, okay, so you hide the body, and knowing the body is hidden, you're going to come up with a theory that resurrection happened, that Jesus rose. Knowing that there's a dead body somewhere hidden, you're going to stand in public declaring that Jesus has risen from the dead? How could you possibly invent that? In fact, when Jesus first explained to the disciples, including Peter, that he would suffer and then rise from the dead, Peter said, you're joking, not so, Lord, that, that can't be true. And yet, uh, here they were. And it's quite clear that the apostles took some convincing that Jesus actually had risen, even though many of them had seen him. Thomas still doubted. It's impossible that these men could have stolen that body. Everyone deserted him and fled, it's described, uh, whenever they were approached. Uh, it says that when the disciples got together, they locked the doors, and it says in John chapter 20, for fear of the Jews. Why? Because you apostles are next for crucifixion after this dies down. But who would allow themselves the courage and the change that came in their lives to be martyred and persecuted and threatened if there was no living Lord, if it was just a dead body? Because their whole character, the whole message of the gospel, of the truth that pervades it, could not possibly permit a lie at its heart. So it seems most unlikely, in fact impossible, the disciples could have stolen the body. But there's even more evidence, and that comes in the next uh, feature we read in John chapter 20, and again, the words are coming up. That when the women went back, Peter and John had a race. John got to the tomb first, but he hesitated. Peter arrived and went in. And it describes it as follows, that when they went in, it says that he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. And the cloth was still lying in its place. Sorry, what place was that? Well, that would have been where the head of Jesus had lain inside the uh, tomb. And it was separate from the linen strips and then it says that the other disciple, that's John, who reached the tomb first, also went inside. It says, John then saw and believed. What did he see that made him believe? What was there in front of him? 
And I think we sometimes get a bad impression when people try to visualize the tomb. Usually the pictures they show you is of a, a sort of bed area or a, a slit where the body would be laid. And there is often a kind of draped linen uh, cloth or cover, a bit like a duvet, I suppose, across it. That is not what John saw. And to understand what he saw, you need to go back to the nights before when, Pont when uh, Joseph and Nicodemus wrapped the body. They would have washed the body. They would have then gently taken spices, 35 kilograms of spices. That's an awful lot of spices. And they would have taken the linen and cut it into strips and then wrap the strip around the body with the spices in between to give a bit of preser preservation, but also to keep the smell down and to make it available to carry. And they would have wrapped every bit of the body up tight with this concoction of spices and linen strips. And that would have congealed with the blood to form a fairly solid coating. Then around the head, they would have wrapped a separate piece of cloth to cover it, and they would have carried the body that way. And the women observed it going into the tomb in that fashion. So what is it then that John would have seen on entering the tomb? Well, he would have seen where the head was, the piece of cloth that was around the head, and then he would have seen uh, a kind of shroud of pieces of linen wrapped around, a bit like an Egyptian mummy, but, but without a body in it. They would have collapsed a bit, but it would have been all lumped together. Now, if the disciples had stolen the body, do you think they would have taken the trouble to carefully unwrap everything? They couldn't have done that. The Romans were outside. And, and to leave the clothes? No, you wouldn't. You grab the body and run. But of course... We know different, that what John saw and what made him believe is he saw the outline of where the body had lain with the head and the body, but nobody there. Jesus had risen and resurrected through the cloth, through the shroud, and was alive. And that is what caused him to say he believed at that moment. And at the end of the gospel, in the same chapter, John describes how there are many things happened, but these are written so that you too might believe. It's such an encouraging word. And this was the turning point, because in chapter 20, John writes, they still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead, even though he had predicted it many times. As they approached Jerusalem, he kept saying to them, Son of man is going to be taken by the authorities, and he is going to be crucified, but on the third day he would rise to, to life. In fact, just a few nights before, after Passover meal, he had said, after I have arisen, meet me in Galilee. Why did all this have to take place? Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, if, if he had died on the cross for our sins, which he did, isn't that enough that we can go to heaven? Uh, well, not quite. If, let me take the story or theory of an operation. If you go into hospital and have an operation and they 
take whatever is cancerous or they take uh, a blockage out of your system and the operation is fully successful and it fully works, if after a period of time the anesthetic doesn't wear off and the patient dies, then the operation has failed. And similarly, if Jesus was to take away, the Lamb of God was to take away the sins of the world and bring eternal life to those who believe in him, he had to overcome death. He had to rise from it to show that he can give us eternal life and that he has broken death once and for all and can deliver it to the rest of the humanity of the world. And so he had to rise, as it says here. <laughs> and then the appearances started happening. Well, there's not much you can do about that. Mary Magdalene, then the women, even though women's testimony may not have been acceptable in a Jewish court, God graciously gave it to the humble and the weak to share the first appearances of Jesus. But then it all happened in numbers. Friend of, and Cleopas were on a road to Emmaus, and it says that Jesus joined and starting with the Old Testament prophets. From Moses forward, he explained. He probably started in Genesis 3 about the serpent's head would be bruised by the Messiah and he would be rising from the dead. It would go on and mention Psalm 16. You will not hold him in death. It would go on to Isaiah 53. It would say, after he has suffered, he will see the light of the world of life and be satisfied. All these texts in the Old Testament pointed to his resurrection. And if we turn to a creed that came around, which again, the words are coming up, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15, it describes how Christ being raised and then he appeared to Peter, then the 12, and then more than 500 people at once. This was clear evidence of the fact he was risen and that indeed he appeared to his brother James and then the apostles and then to the apostle Paul himself. In other words, people started to keep meeting the risen Jesus. And of course, then the apostles went out with this message. Their changed behavior, their changed message, what made the difference? Peter went to the center of Jerusalem. You don't want to do that. They'd been hiding upstairs, remember? But now he says in his message about Jesus, and here's the words he uses, God has raised Jesus to life, and we all are witnesses. Their message focused on the risen Jesus. It was the very heart of their testimony. In the temple, they went and explained to the priests, gosh, who would risk going into the temple after what had happened? But he said to the priests, you killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. Why, that's courage, but where did that come from? Only could they have met the risen Christ and he given it to them through his Holy Spirit. And worse still, they got dragged in front of the Sanhedrin. Annas was there and Caiaphas, the two high priests who had condemned Jesus to the cross. And what did he say to them? Peter said, God raised him from the dead. <laughs> and the priests knew that because they knew the tomb was empty. The soldiers had told them. And it says they were astonished. No wonder. 
because Jesus had indeed risen and transformed his people. The risen Christ is from then onwards at the center of their preaching and testimony, ha, and ours, and indeed should be. Too often we preach and we focus on the cross, but we hesitate sometimes to share the risen Christ, the resurrection, and ensure that those who listen and are hearing can have the opportunity to meet the risen Savior. The resurrection takes us beyond Calvary. In the Christian festival of the church, we make an awful fuss over Christmas, over a baby being born in Bethlehem. No, Easter is the people we should be. We are risen resurrection people. That is the main festival because that is where we realize why Jesus came into the world to take our sins, why he's risen from the dead to bring living eternal life into our lives and all who will come. That is what caused the rapid growth of the church from a tiny little village or two around Jerusalem to spread within a hundred years through the known world. Indeed, people in the book of Acts confessed and claimed that to the, they, they objected to Christianity spreading so fast because they said when Apostle Paul and others came that these people who turned the world upside down have come here. That's what we should be doing, turning this world upside down, because this is the message, the explosive message of God that does it, the resurrection. How do we apply this? Let's make a, a point quite clear. Jesus had to rise, but then he had to ascend to heaven. He could not hang around. If it had been me there, I would have said, Lord, come on, let's go and convince them. Let's get Annas and Caiaphas. Let's, let's bring you in front of the Sanhedrin. Show them your hands and your feet. Show them you've risen. Go, go to Pontius Pilate and the, the Roman soldiers and, and show them. Make quite clear who you are and that you've risen. And God is not interested in doing that. He's not there for magic tricks. God only showed himself, the Lord Jesus, to those who would believe. And he opened and offered those who were doubters the opportunity to come and have faith. And the disciples were those who were commissioned to display Jesus to the rest of the world, the risen Jesus. And so are we. How do I know? Wasn't I just talking to him a few minutes ago? As probably were you in prayer this morning? And when I was 17, I still remember the experience. Jesus came into my bed. Well, well I, I wasn't, he didn't appear in front of me like, 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 um, like he did to the, but I knew he was there as I read his word in the Bible. I knew he was there as he came into my heart and as he has walked and changed that heart and continued in that process of faith, daily walking. He's changed my life. He's changed my mind. He's changed the filth. He's, he's changed. He is here. And I'm sure you can share the same testimony, many of you. And if you, if you cannot, then do come to him, read and discover for yourself. He is indeed risen. The encounter with Christ that each one of us has experienced or can experience 
becomes our commission to do what the apostles did and witness to his resurrection. He is alive today. It is our job to testify and pass it on. I'll finish with the words of a hymn. I serve a risen Savior. He's in the world today. I know that he is living, whatever men may say. I, 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 I see his, uh, his hand of mercy. I, I, I hear his voice of cheer. And just the time I need it, he's always near. And the chorus says this, he lives, he lives. Christ Jesus lives today. He walks with me and he talks with me along life's narrow way. He lives salvation to impart. He wants it to share with you. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. He can live within yours. He is risen. Hallelujah. He is risen indeed.